What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Boston Celtics select Jason Tatum from Duke University. Brown on the break for the Celtics. Goes around the world. Oh, the circus game in Boston. Walker for three. Kemba Walker from downtown. Tatum drives down. Let's roll it down. Wow. Rebound. Gordon Hayward for two. Gordon Hayward with a corner crash. No block. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We are brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, Celtics beat writer for MassLive.com. I'm joined by Nicole Yang. Nicole, how are you doing? You know, Tom, I'm not doing that badly today. Okay. All right. What's going on? What's uh, what's keeping you positive today? So I went for a very nice, like, two-hour walk with my friend and colleague, Nora Princiati. Shout out to Nora. So that was nice. Get some fresh air. The sun was actually out. And then listen to the new Dua Lipa album again. We talked about this yesterday. Uh, I know that that's a person uh, or like a singer of some sort. Yes. I, sw- I think every time I try to like talk about pop culture stuff, I sound so much older than I actually am. It's not that I'm <laughs> old. It's just that I, I don't know who Dua Lipa is. So... Tom and I were at Canopy Lake for a Celtics event and there was a Taylor Swift impersonator on the stage and she was singing Shake It Off. And I was like, Tom, do you know what song this is? And he said, no. There's so no it was Shake It Off. There's no it was Shake, shake it, off. it Off. I remember. No, I know Shake It Off. It wasn't Shake It Off because it was it was like something off like her new album or something. I'm pretty sure it was Shake It Off, Tom. <laughs> well, <laughs> And that was Tom's cue to say he needed case, to leave the event. I did leave at that point, yeah. Um, in that case, the impersonator was bad. Uh, <laughs> my take on the story. Um, yeah, no, I've been uh, I've been playing some music too. I was a guitarist in a former life, so I've been uh, trying to rehone my skills on that. And I also built a couple of like those those raised like vegetable boxes. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. You know, yeah, I built a couple of those today, so was, I've uh, been relatively productive. Was that your secret project that you were building but didn't want to say what you were building? No, my predictably my secret project that I didn't want to tell anybody about actually did fail. So oh, okay, um, no, <laughs> which I knew it was going to, which is why I didn't want to be like, oh hey, I'm in the mood because I knew it wasn't going to work. So, very fair. Yeah, um, we are. Very excited on this episode to be joined by a good friend of ours, uh, Sopan Deb of the New York Times. 
Sopan has been an NBA writer for a couple of years now. He's got a fascinating story, which he kind of takes us through. Let's talk to him about the Celtics. He's had a couple of interesting conversations with Kyrie Irving and Kemba Walker. So we talked to him about that, about a Jason Tatum story he wrote when he was just getting started. Um, and also his new book called Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. So if you're able to, definitely recommend going out and getting that. But yeah, it was a it was a really fun conversation with Sopan. We'll get into it in just a second after this word from Bet Online. The Geno Time Podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on, or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use the promo code BLUEWIRE, that's B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E. Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, so today we have a special guest, Sopan Deb of the New York Times. Welcome, Sopan. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited. So you grew up in Boston? Uh, no, actually, I was, oh. born, I was born in Lowell. Okay. Uh, I lived there until I was about three, and I, but I mostly grew up in New Jersey. Oh, okay. So then how did you develop like such strong ties to the Celtics? Like, How did you become a Celtics fan? Two things. My brother, who's 10 years older than me, he got me on a sports, and Antoine Walker. Um, yes. Antoine Walker's rookie year was my first year following the Celtics. And I'm trying to remember if that was 95 or 96. I don't remember exactly which year it was. And I just loved watching him play. He's like this six, nine guy. He's, he's, that was back when he could jump, like he's dunking, <laughs> he could shoot the ball. And that was back when six, nine guys weren't shooting the three. I loved the way he handled the ball and he's throwing these ridiculous behind the back passes. And I just, there's something about him that I love watching him play. And, and that was around when like, I really got into video games too. So part of that is like, I'm playing NBA live, you know, 97 or whatever. And like, you're playing at the Celtics and the best player on the Celtics is Antoine Walker. So like you're playing as the, the, this guy. So, you, so that's where my fandom really developed. But Antoine Walker was the guy that got me onto the NBA. I loved Antoine Walker when I was younger. Like he, like you said, like there weren't too many like six, nine guys shooting like, like that. And like, I, I just remember like my favorite Antoine Walker quote is the same as everybody else where he was like, I shoot threes cause there are no fours. Yeah. Um, and like, <laughs> As a as a big time shooter, like that's exclusively what I do. I, I literally choose his number whenever I can in right. men's leagues because I'm just like, no, like I'm shooting all these threes because there are no fours. Okay, so people don't remember this, but like in the 2001 2002 era of the Celtics, this has been like the prime of Pierce and Walker. Like there was a legitimate debate going on in Celtic fans as to who was like who was the better fit on the team, Antoine oh, yeah. Walker or Paul Pierce? And like in hindsight, what a ridiculous conversation, right? Because Antoine, look, inefficient, conditioning issues, his best, his career, like his playing ability decreased as his career went on. Usually like you know, his prime when he was in his early 20s, yet like that's how beloved he was in Boston. And that in 2002, people were like, sure, Paul Pierce, uh, got stabbed, came back to have an all NBA season. But have you seen Antoine Walker? <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. 
I think one of the things with Antoine too is that Celtics fans suffered through the nineties where it was just like, just bleak basketball. Like, you know, there was like tragedy, there was bad seasons everywhere. And then Antoine Walker was the first guy who came in who kind of felt like a potential star. So like people really liked him because they were like, Oh, like we've got somebody again. Like we've got somebody really good. And then, yeah, I mean, Pierce came along and was clearly better, but I think that was part of it was just, he was like sort of the end of that really just kind of desolate era of not much happening in the Celtics world. Right. And then that 2000, my, my, my hot take when it comes to uh, a fandom, right. Hot takes things. So pan is full of. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, My hot take is that uh, I actually enjoy the 2002 Celtics as a fan more than I did the 2008 Celtics. Not because the 2008 team was not better, of course it was, but subconsciously as fans, we are, um, it's all about expectation, right? So, so when a team triumphs expectations, that's a much better fan experience than when a team meets expectations. So that 2002 team, the one that went to Eastern Conference Finals, before the season, they weren't really predicted to even make the playoffs. They had a little bit of a Cinderella run led by Jim O'Brien to get, I think they won 49 games and then they went to the Eastern Conference Finals and they had a comeback win against the Nets. And then the other thing is when you're, and that was when I was, let's say 13, 14 years old. When you're 13, 14 years old, sports seem like the most important thing in the world to you. So when the Nets beat the Celtics, I was crying. I was Mm. crying, I was hitting the wall. Like that's how upset I was by that. When the Celtics won their championship in 2008, um, you know, I'm 20. And at that point, um, you know, you're, a little, you're an adult. You understand that sports aren't like an all-encompassing thing in your life. And the Celtics were expected to win the championship that year. If the Celtics lost that finals, that season would have been considered a failure. You know, and so it's just a different experience as a fan when you watch those two things. So for me personally, I just remember being much more jubilant about the Celtics in that Eastern Conference Finals than the Celtics when they won the title just because I was younger and you don't you don't know anything about the world at that point. I think that kind of corollary is also true of like the Isaiah Thomas years where yes! you know there was yes! there was no expectation and then he so, comes in and I mean obviously he was electric he was one of the most electric players I've seen live since I started covering basketball but yeah. like that little stretch but there was also the fact that like this team was so far ahead of schedule and everybody thought they were going to have to wait until the Nets picks conveyed and, and started developing before they'd be good again. But no, here comes this little guy who just comes in and all of a sudden this zero expectation team is a super fan favorite. The most fun I've ever, aside from that early Celtics, it's like since the, since the finals team, the most fun I've ever had watching a game. And this is, this is a little bit of an off the wall answer is um, that the, so it's the Cavs Celtic Eastern conference finals. Isaiah Thomas is out with his hip injury and that one game they won. I think it was Avery Bradley. Yes. Right. And what was amazing about that game is that it's 3-0. The Celtics are on the road. They are missing their best player. They have every reason to lay down. Every, they've, they're, they're, they, you know, the Cavs have LeBron. They're expected to make the finals. The Celtics are lucky they even got this far. And somehow Marcus Smart, like, and and this team of hodgepodge, I don't even remember who else was on the team now. I think Crowder might have been. No, I don't. I think Crowder was on that team still. He was, oh, yeah. Jonas Jurepko. Jonas Jurepko yes. spurred that comeback. And they were down, I think, 15 or 16 points in the fourth quarter. And somehow they gutted out this way. And you know, you know it's unusual when Jonas Jurepko is doing the TNT interview after the game. <laughs> you know, like, something weird has happened. I, but, again, it's about fan expectations. That game, I think 
I believe the Celtics had a line of 15. They were, they were favored to lose by 15 before the game. And so when you, when you just have your expectation triumph, it's just a much better experience as a fan. Marcus Smart in that game, side note, went seven for 10 from three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I said, <laughs> there's some weird stuff, unusual stuff going on in that game. And I think Avery Bradley's winning shot like hung on the rim long yeah. enough or like bounced on the rim long enough. So enough time was off that the Cavs like didn't have a chance. Yes. For a yeah, it well. bounced. It bounced yeah. in. That's right. Yeah, it was like it was it wasn't quite the Kawhi four bounces or anything, but it was still like it was close. <laughs> it was a remarkable, it was a pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable shot. Um, what's the best Celtics game you've seen in person? Oh, uh, best Celtics game I've seen. Um, because I was young and stupid, um, my first game I ever went to was actually in 2003. Uh, my first NBA game was Christmas Day, Nets-Celtics, after the, after the Nets had eliminated the Celtics from the playoffs. And it was at the old Meadowlands. And it was my brother and I, our first NBA game together. And that was still in that phase in your life where – uh, sports are a huge deal to you. I'm not saying they're not a huge deal now. I'm saying that's back when it's larger than life. And uh, that was Antoine Walker, uh, a guy named uh, Bruno Sundov was on the Celtics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the Celtics got blown out. Uh, they got they lost by like 30 points in that game. It was blizzarding outside. It was horrible. I was like so mad after the game. But I just remember it was my first NBA game, and it was just so wonderful. Like. You know, Tony Batiste right there. And like, you know, you're seeing, you know, I, I don't even remember who was on the team at that point, like maybe Potapenko and all those guys. And you're like, oh my God, they're right there. And basketball players are huge. And we have courtside seats. So, uh, like, seeing these like Greek gods in person was just such a, I just, I'll never forget that. Um, so, my first NBA game was, was quite something. So we should, we should back up a little bit and give people a sense of how you got to where you were. Can you kind of just give us like the, the overview of going from, you know, politics, culture, to now being a, uh, an NBA reporter for the New York or Times? Or even like we can start even before that, just fan yeah. to wanting to get into journalism. It all started March 15th, 1988. No, I'm just kidding. I actually went to college. I went to Boston University to be a sports broadcaster. That's what my initial goal in life was to be. And I, you know, I wanted to be a Mike Breen, Mike Gorman, one of those types. And that actually was a sports director of the radio station at Boston. Uh, I, got, I got kind of uh, disillusioned with sports. I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I spent my 20s mostly working in production, uh, documentary production, TV production. But my big break was in 2016 when I got hired to cover uh, the Trump campaign as a campaign embed for CBS. And that was really like what kind of put me on the map as a journalist. Uh, and then... Once Trump won the election, I was going to go to the White House and be a White House reporter for CBS, but I was exhausted. And the thing about covering politics is that it's an overwhelming thing. You're just tired all the time. You don't have a life outside of it. And, you know, I, I, it's willing to do that when you're 25. I just didn't want to do that in my 30s and just have no life whatsoever. And so at that point, the Times reached out about me covering culture. And it was a total life raft because I just, I couldn't. I didn't, I, I was just too burned out to do more Trump stuff. And I don't know about you guys, and this is not a reflection on like political views or whatever. I'm just exhausted by the news cycle on a day-to-day basis. I'm just tired. Every day is just like, oh, you know? And, <laughs> and, um, and I, I think, I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think that's going to be like that. It's going to be that way for like the rest of our lives. That's just the way the world's adopting, adapting rather. Um, and then, um, so culture was an interesting opportunity because I do comedy and I'm a musician and I do all this other stuff. And the Times was interested in that. 
So, uh, you know, it's about theater, film. I'd be writing about theater, film, dance, art, music, all this other stuff that I'm interested in. And then um, a couple, about a year ago, the new, uh, we hired a new sports editor and he came to me and he said, uh, how would you like to be the new basketball writer? We know you love basketball and you've written about it a little bit for us. Um, we'd love to, we'd love to, for you to do it. And I thought at first that he had lost his mind. Like there was <laughs> something was wrong. Like, like, or that he was like, be, this is like a hazing ritual or he was being pranked uh, or something. And I, I, I wanted to kind of be like, are you, do you know, do you know me at all? Like, do you know, are you sure about this? And he said, yeah. And then, um, you know, every two years, I like to try something kind of new. And I was very fortunate. He approached me and I, I said, yes. And um, here I am a year later and not covering basketball. <laughs> and, um, no, but I will say um, it is the best job I've ever had. Uh, in part because the times, the way they cover sports is different than other places do and that we get the we get to take a lot of 10,000 foot views and they really let me use my voice a lot and whatnot um uh but also just I, I get paid to watch basketball what a weird ridiculous life that is you know like uh, and so I, I'm very I'm very fortunate that uh, I get to do this so a typical day for us is like you go to shoot around you talk to Brad you can request players go home go to the game, pregame access, mingle on the court, watch the game, et cetera. What's like a typical day on the White House campaign? Uh, it's not too dissimilar, actually. Okay. It's, it's really not. Um, so that shoot arounds for uh, press pool availabilities. So that's when Trump might be holding a, a meeting in the Oval Office or uh, he's doing a remarks at, um, you know, some VFW hall or something. Um, and then shove, sub out games for press conferences or primetime speeches or whatever. It's not too dissimilar, actually. Um, it's very much a very, it's very much a separate grind. Replace, um, you know, box scores and game results with economic numbers and, and jobs numbers and um, trade deficits and, you know, vote counts for uh, congressional bills or whatever. It's, it's really not that, it's actually not that different. I would actually say two, and this is actually a fault of political journalism, I would say, is that you have a lot of the prerequisite skills if you cover, if you're a sports beat reporter, that you do to cover politics. And unfortunately, too much of politics is covered like a game. And that's, that's not a good thing, but it's the, the reality in which the industry has found itself. Interesting. So now that you're an NBA reporter, have you been able to kind of transfer those skills to sports? Has, has that translated pretty well? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, the big difference between sports and politics is that sports are not essential politics correct, correct. <laughs> politics like affect people's lives kobe bryant or lebron james or paul pierre or whoever name a player them scoring 40 40 points a game does not affect does not affect people's lives um i find that the biggest thing for me is to not take it seriously and i don't mean that i don't take the work seriously or i don't take my job seriously is that i don't take sports seriously because i think if i start treating it with the sort of reverence that some other people do, then you start losing perspective. Mm. And that's where covering politics has really helped me is that it's allowed me to maintain perspective as I write stories and, you know, where it does affect lead into other things like the China story, the NBA and China story is really interesting to me because that hit a lot of my wheelhouses, politics, culture, sports. At the end of the day, a lot of these athletes are just human beings like, like the rest of us. You know, they're no more interesting or uninteresting than accountants, teachers, janitors, whatever. So I think what's been the biggest thing for me is try to maintain perspective. 
Have you found that you've had to adjust any like interviewing techniques or things like that? Do you have different tactics in sports compared to politics? Yeah. Well, in politics, right? Like you don't need to ask. If you have a politician in front of you, you don't need to ask any softball questions. They're, they're there to serve the public. And, you know, if I have 10 questions to ask a politician, all 10 of them are probably going to be um, policy related or whatever. You know, if you have a, you know, I sat down with Kemba Walker, um, what seems like five years ago, but <laughs> and you know, I'm trying to get to know Kemba. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get him to say stuff that he's never said before. And that's a different challenge than, you know, holding, I don't know, Kellyanne Conway accountable for X thing. You know, you're not, you're not holding, I'm not holding Kemba Walker accountable for being Kemba Walker in that conversation, if that makes sense. And also like, you know, I find the, the gaggles, like the post-game press conferences, it's really hard to ask good questions, you know? Like, think about how absurd the industry is. Like, imagine playing basketball at a high level, 40 minutes in a game, let's say if you're a star player, at, against the best athletes in the world. And then within minutes of finishing that game, you are like, you have to answer questions about your, you have to get a performance review from a bunch of people that have never played the game in your life. Like what an absurd thing, you know what I mean? And I think we as, we as writers have to be cognizant of that too. Like they're dead tired and you're asking them, hey, how come you missed that shot at the end of the game? Like it's such a weird world, you know? We're used to it. I don't know that we understand how weird it is, you know? Well, and the good thing is I think players are used to it too. Like right. when, they, when they get to the NBA level, it's like, all right, like they were doing this in high school. They were doing this in college. It's like, it's, it's what you do, but it and is it's like, they get paid. it's like, if they get paid, yes, right. they make a lot of money because of that. Right. You know, like, and, yeah. and, some, and some of them I'm sure grew up dreaming of this, like dreaming of the post, like being, having the cameras on them and like, you know, being the person they come to for quotes and that kind of stuff. And that's great. It doesn't take away from how weird it is. No, a thousand percent. I think, and I think it's good for reporters to remember that, yeah, this is a, a bizarre thing. Um, I mean, the most bizarre to me is like coaches, coaches being interviewed at, like in between quarters. That's the funniest thing. <laughs> like that is the funniest part of like the mandated press access. <laughs> like <laughs> no coach is going to give away their game plan. You know, like no coach wants it's, to talk to a reporter in between quarters. The best one is when, is when it's Brad, because like Brad, he doesn't give away his game plan at all like he won't he won't right. tell you anything about his game plan at all so when it's like in the middle of the game it's extra just as bland as brad can possibly be <laughs> which he's very good at being when he feels like it yeah exactly <laughs> um so when rookies get to the nba like we all like to ask them about their welcome to the nba moment and stuff like that obviously you're not a rookie in terms of like a reporter but did you have like a welcome to the nba moment when you adjusted uh -huh. when you shifted to sports um that's a great question. I've never thought about it. Um, yeah. Um, when, um, and I won't say who, but when PR people call you up to yell at you over stuff. Um, now, that happened all the time in politics. But when it's in sports, you, you go, what are, really? Like, that's what <laughs> you're getting on me about? Then you remember what matters to the teams and what matters to the league. And you suddenly are well, much more cognizant of those kind of things. And I'm trying, I'm trying to remember, I think I tweeted some joke. And I, I don't even remember what the joke was. It was just something totally anodyne. And I just remember getting a call from a spokesperson that was like, you know, hey, why are you saying this? And I'm like, no, I was just joking. Th that, was, that, was some, that was a moment where I was very, um, where I was like, I'm sure if you gave me some more time, I could think of a better moment. And my guess is like one I could think of was when I asked you, 
<laughs> after Philly lost on the Kawhi shot, I asked Jimmy Butler if he was re-signing with Philly. <laughs> Cause like, I didn't, you know, I, it was like, I was in like first month on the job and you know, of course you're not going to get an answer on that. But I was like, you know, the political reporter and you took over and was like, I need to ask the important question here. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and Jimmy, if looks could kill, right? <laughs> like this was probably 10 minutes after Kawhi's shot went down. And so Embiid is, you know, you know, that's where he, he cried afterwards. And, you know, Philly is devastated because I think that Philly team might have won the finals if that Kawhi shot doesn't go down. They probably, in fact, they probably do, in fact. Yeah. Um, and the first question is, uh, Jimmy, from a guy who he's never heard of, has no, who looks like a little pipsqueak in the back of the room. Uh, hey, uh, Jimmy, uh, can, you do t- can you commit to <laughs> re-signing in Philly after uh would i do that today no i would not but I probably, like, you know i don't know like it was a bit oh i did the same thing with brett brown too like because after same night lost, that same night yeah <laughs> you know, I'm like uh hey brett have you had a conversation about your future with the team and i remember i feel I, like that's a different question for coaches though i feel like that's like for a player like obviously players aren't gonna say anything but i feel like a question like that like have you you know thought about your future with the team i think that's a on the last night of the season when you don't know if you're going to get these guys again i think that's a reasonable question uh i will tell brett brown that the next time i see him <laughs> and brett will be like who said that yeah, exactly yeah that's the, I mean, that's the thing. none of these people know who you are right you know that that's that's a well that's the thing is like you know a lot of the people that at these games the same people at every game you know you've got your mark steins and woges and you've got the the beat reporters everyone i'm just this guy Wait, you used to cover what? Like theater and film and TV and you used to cover Trump? Like, who are you and what are you doing here? That's that's probably been the biggest adjustment, especially when you go to other cities. The people in Boston are not like that because, you know, I'm friends with a lot of you guys and I know you guys, I've followed you guys for years and I've read your writings for years and I'm, I'm very familiar with you guys. When you go to other cities, especially during the playoffs, it can feel a little, it just feels, it's a much different feel with other, you know, with the other writers in the room and whatnot. Especially when you're asking ridiculous questions, like, can you, are you resigning? Right. <laughs> one of the, one of your first stories, if I recall correctly, uh, as a NBA reporter for the times was about Jason Tatum. Uh, and you got like a really nice little anecdote uh, for that one that he had the, uh, I, I think he, he had the, the poster on the, on the wall poster of, him. of him dunking on him, booming on LeBron James. Yeah. The- yeah. What, uh, what was reporting on that story? Like just as somebody who was getting into, you know, the NBA as a, as a writer for the first time, who was also a Celtics fan beforehand. Like, what was that like? So, you know, in the court, when I'm doing the job, I don't care about the Celtics and how they do. You know what I mean? Sure. It doesn't matter to me. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, like, my paycheck matters a lot more to me and my career matters a lot more <laughs> to me. You know, like, whether Jason Tatum, you know, grows as a player is, you know, interesting to me as a fan, but, like, being a fan is, like, you know, not even the top 10 of my priorities in life, right? Um, talking to Tatum at the time was interesting because he hadn't quite fully adjusted to the media spotlight yet, I don't think. You know, and not that he hadn't done interviews, but like he wasn't like the focal point. And whenever I have an interview like that, I, I take a lot of pride in my interviews and trying to get people to talk about things they haven't talked about in the past. My big advice to young journalists is if you're, if you're, if you're going to have a sit down with someone, read everything there is to be written about that person because this way you will come across things that have that, that person has not been asked and in the case of tatum look if you ask him about 
trade rumors or whatever. He, he got asked about that all the time, but I'd never seen him asked about whether he knew that he was a meme on Reddit. So it was something that he actually challenged like, oh, I'm, let me think about this. And, and that's when you know you're doing a good interview when they have to go, they go, oh, I've never been asked that before. Like in the same way when you guys were like, oh, what's your welcome to the NBA moment? I was like, oh shit, I never, oh, well, I'm sorry, I cursed, I apologize. We Please think you're allowed time. to do that? I don't know, we don't. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, like, oh shoot, like, you know, I, I never thought about that. And so my goal with every interview is to get the subject to think about things they've never thought about before. And the biggest example of that for me was the Kyrie Irving interview from a couple of years before where, you know, we talked about the earth being flat and whatnot. The, re- the reason that conversation got started is that I didn't, a- it's not that I asked him, hey, do you think the earth is flat? It's that I asked him, do you have a need to be different? Like, are you a contrarian? And is that why you were doing the flat earth thing? Like, do you just want to be dif- different from everybody else? And that's where it got started. And so, and so the, so the thing was really interesting because he, he, you know, I, I haven't seen him give a lot of very spicy quotes. Uh, you know, you would be correct. correct. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, he, he gave me a pretty spicy one. Um, and, and sometimes look, part of this is also a privilege. Like they hear New York times and maybe, you know, subconsciously they're raising their game a little bit more than they would in a group of 12 reporters that they, he sees every day. I don't know. So when you got that Tatum answer and he, he told you that uh, he had a big ass photo of this, uh, of this dunk in his, in his room, what are you thinking at that point? Just like, yes, got him. I'm good. I got, I got the um, uh, angle I was going for there. Tom, I kid you not. I laughed out loud. Yeah. I literally burst out laughing because I was not expecting anything out of this interview because every piece of feedback I had heard before that was like, you know, Tatum's a tough quote. He's just going to give you kind of generic answers. And every interview I'd seen with him was very generic. I knew that no one else had that. And so I knew I had something right there, you know, and, you know, I tried to get other stuff out of him and, you know, you could tell some of the stuff he had been asked before and some of the stuff he was interested in. It was a good interview and, you know, he was very gracious with his time. The thing about it, a lot of these athletes, they don't need, like, they don't need me, you know? Like, yeah. they don't need to do every interview that they get asked to do. And, you know, he was very gracious with his time and that was very nice of him. When you get him one-on-one, he will give you some good stuff if he's interested in what you're asking about or if, if you ask the right questions. Like, you can get something interesting out of him, but you can ask the right questions. You can ask whatever questions in a scrum and he will just give you nothing. And that's where I think most people get their impression of him from but if you sit down with them and you you know if you have five minutes ten minutes whatever there's a half decent chance that you're going to get something interesting because it's not like he's you know it's not like he's a bad interview or like an unpleasant guy or anything he's just i don't think he likes scrums and and when you talk to him one-on-one it's a lot different honestly if you put a microphone in front of me and ask me questions four times a week how many of those four times am i going to be able to be interesting to you right honestly like it's hard enough for people to be interesting once a month, let alone like four times a week. And, you know, on national television, you know, it's, I, I, if you're not trained in that kind of stuff, you know, Jason Tatum was brought up to be a basketball player, Jalen Brown, Giannis, all these guys, they grew up, they weren't, they're not standup comics, you know, right. they're not, you know, they're not, they're not novelists, you know, and that's not a knock on them. It's just, you know, I, I think it's it, the, the, the expectations are really hard for them to fulfill for anybody. Definitely. You have now had like, you know, useful conversations with Kyrie and Kemba, which obviously is kind of a, you know, dichotomy that Celtics fans are interested in. And what, what's kind of your impression of each one? Um, okay. So 
in my conversation with Kyrie, Kyrie said that when he retired, he wanted to buy it and start his own TV network. In my conversation with Kemba Walker, when I asked him what he, what he wanted to do after he retired, he said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, which I thought was very funny. Um, Kemba Walker thrives on being boring. He said that. He's, he's called himself a boring guy. He used uh, every other sentence had the word blessed coming out of it. I'm blessed to do this. I'm blessed to, uh, you know, play the game. I'm blessed. And that, that is, you know, I'm not making fun of him. Like, literally, like, he, he seems to be a guy that is just wakes up every morning, looks in the mirror and goes, guys, can you believe this? Like, can you believe what I get to do on a date? What? Like, what am I doing? You know? Um, and he came from, he talks about coming from the projects of um, the Bronx and how that experience has pushed him to be like, oh my God, I, there were people like being shot where I grew up and now I live in, I live in Brookline. Are you kidding? You know? <laughs> um, what was so interesting to, Ky- to me about Kyrie is he, he, he has ambitions that are much bigger than basketball. He's a brilliant basketball player, but, you know, look at Uncle Drew. Uncle Drew, look, is it like the catcher in the rye of filmmaking? No, it's not. <laughs> but, but it was a remarkable, notable film because you have essentially the first time a commercial has been called a film. It was a giant, it's a two and a half hour, however long, it's a, com- it's a Pepsi commercial. That's yeah. what Uncle Drew was. And that was all Kyrie, a lot of that was Kyrie's doing. And so Kyrie has this, he has ambitions far beyond basketball. At least he did, you know, a couple years ago. Now, whether he's changed in the last year or two, I, you know, whatever. But he clearly was looking at life without, he, he thinks about his brand a lot. He thinks about other stuff. And whereas Kemba is very basketball focused. Not that Kyrie isn't focused on basketball. It's that Kyrie has other things going on too. Kemba, it's like, he said he, he, said he wants to play like, like Vince Carter until his mid forties until they have to escort him off the floor. And, and then he has no idea what comes after that. Kyrie's planting seeds for what comes, as is LeBron James, as is Kevin Durant, as is Steph Curry, Draymond Green. All these guys have things going on that they're looking to, to plant. You know, Andre Godala has a lot of the, you know, Silicon Valley stuff going on. They all have, they all, they have stuff going on. Kemba Walker is very, very basketball focused. Kemba just wants to hoop, man. Like it's, yeah. it's wild, like trying to talk to him about like, we were, we were trying to talk to him about like injuries, stuff like that. Like, Injuries are the only time when he does not want to speak to us as beak reporters because he's just so mad. Right. I, I think because he's just so mad that he can't go out there and do what he wants to do, which is just get a bucket, cross somebody over. Like that is what he lives for. And it it right. is kind of like, you know, it, I mean, after last year, it's it's not always like the most interesting because like, I mean, last year for all of its warts, it was definitely interesting. But with Kemba, it's like, like, all right, dude just wants to talk about basketball. He wants to play basketball. He just, he just loves what he does. And it's, it's kind of cool to see. Kemo is even like when he goes home, he like he plays 2K, you know, like, yeah. like, like, like to me, it's very funny to me how many NBA players play 2K because that would feel like work to me, you know, like what, like it's like going home and like writing times pieces on my off time. <laughs> <laughs> like, who would want to do that, you know? You just go home and imagine, like, man, what if I was a reporter for the New York Times? <laughs> <laughs> right. I think Kyrie would like to give off that impression that he feels the same way, but then there are so many, like, I remember the first instance where I realized, oh, Kyrie's very, like, brand conscious was, uh, I was at an event, and Kyrie was getting interviewed, and there was water on the table, like, just the side table, and it was core water, 
And Kyrie's like, oh, oh, we have to hide these. Like, I don't support core water or whatever, like Pepsi only. And like some people would say that as a joke, but no, Kyrie literally took the water bottles and put them behind his chair for the interview. I remember Kawhi did that in the playoffs last year too. Yeah, yeah, he it did. Gator, it was like a bottle of Gatorade, I think. And he and he and he um and he moved the Gatorade. He's like, oh, I'm not a Gatorade guy. Kemba does not. Strike I think he it. swore. I think he like put put it off to the side. And like, like I, I don't remember what it was, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's um, right. No, but I mean, Kemba's Kemba's interesting too. I wouldn't be surprised. I could see him maybe getting into into like fashion somehow, just because he's he's so well dressed all the time. Like he's really sharp that way. Like. I could, I could see that being a potential avenue of some kind post playing. I asked him. I asked him, like, first of all, I asked him if he was interested in film and TV, like doing anything in that room. He said no. I, I'm like, Kemba, give me something. <laughs> like, you know, he's like, well, I'm kind of into fashion. And I'm like, okay, so what's your fashion sense? He goes, oh, it's simple. And that was the, that was the answer. <laughs> it's like very simple. Like, so even that, he's just a very... Um, and I mean this in a complimentary way. He's just a very simple, and actually Brad Stevens said this too. He's simple. He's a simple guy. You know, uh, he is one of those guys you do worry about after retirement. Like when that is not, because he doesn't want to yeah. coach. He doesn't want to coach. Doesn't want to be a GM. He said maybe he'll do some developmental stuff. But like, he, you know, do you remember uh, there's a player, there's a documentary last year, the year before about a guy named, um, about big country, Bryant Reeves. Remember him? Yeah. yeah. The, the big man that used to play for the Grizzlies. Um, he got a huge electric haircut, just one of the best yeah, haircuts yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. He got a huge deal from the Grizzlies, you know, kind of that was back when big men roamed the, the court and, you know, kind of became the poster boy for, I think, bad contracts, but he made a lot of money. Then Vancouver moves to Memphis. The Grizzlies moved to Memphis and then he retires. And then essentially he was never heard from again. Like, so this woman went on, went on um, this, this quest to find this, to find big country Bryant Reeves because she was a big Grizzlies fan. Like coaches didn't know where he was, players didn't know, like teammates didn't know where he was, um, Lee contacts didn't know where he was. Turns out that he is, was like, I think he like bought land in Oklahoma and just ranches full time, and that's what he <laughs> does. Like doesn't even watch basketball, has no idea what's going on in the NBA or whatever. And I could see that being Kemba. Like just you'll find him in the middle of um, middle of nowhere, just hanging out, no connection to the you know, not watching the NBA on a day to day basis when he's like in his fifties. We're all gonna be surprised by that. Well, that's funny you say that because that's what Kyrie says Kyrie wants to do. Which I, I mean, like at one point last year he said I'm trying to you know when I retire I want to go to Texas and live in like a commune somewhere. I don't remember what his exact phrase was, but Kyrie said that. Yeah, that he wants to like, I think his was more in reference to technology. Like he just wants oh, okay. to un- unplug from all technology and, you know, not have that, sure. I guess, be a part of his life. But yeah, I mean, at the time it was just like, yeah, I just want to, you know, escape from everything. It was like, all right, dude, but you, you sure seem like you enjoy doing your Nike commercials and your Pepsi commercials and, and everything else. So yeah, right. but it, it, so it, it's funny that, that you say that you can see Kemba doing that because I could too. But Kyrie also says I, that Kyrie wants to be that way. I will say in the case of Kyrie, did, and did you guys see Uncle Drew by chance, the film? I did see it, yes. Uh, Uncle Drew, uh, Kyrie was very good as Uncle Drew. Like, he actually has acting talent. Mm. Um, <laughs> like, it would not surprise me to see him, you know, go, like, do a couple more films, you know, before. Like, to do that in your off season, people spend a year preparing for a role. Kyrie just did it, you know, like he dressed up as an old man and 
And if you didn't know, if you knew nothing about basketball, you would not know that Uncle Drew was like this 25-year-old professional basketball player. You know, like, and right. I, I was pretty impressed by that. He was supposed to do a second film this past off season. Um, oh, really? The Haunted House movie. Yes, that's right. Whatever yeah. happened to that? So, in Oklahoma, right? Yeah, the production just got all delayed. Um, news of that had come out before Kyrie had already left. So I was sort of tracking that and in touch with the director and he was like, yeah, Kyrie just keeps putting it off and off and off. And then Kyrie went to Tokyo and what was so very what was delayed. I think it was just with his girlfriend at the time, just oh, it was, like it was, sort it of was, like a spiritual Kyrie thing. Yeah. He went on like a find himself quest in Tokyo. Uh, hey, I would love to do one of those. But I can't leave my house. Right now, so. <laughs> I would love to find myself quest. I would like a quest of any sort right now. <laughs> yeah. Find anybody. Quest. All of my quests are to the kitchen these days. So, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So you also have a book coming out. Yes, yes. Uh, a great time to release a book is in the middle of a global <laughs> pandemic, as you guys, that's what they tell you in PR 101. Is it actually a bad time? Because I feel like a lot of people are trying to like read more, or trying to like, you know, get into stuff like that. I will give you an honest answer, uh, as opposed to my typically non-serious answers. Um, so your press gets wiped out. Yes, people have more time to read now, in theory, but you can't read something you don't know about, mm. right? And so all of our launch events, the first two or three months got canceled. Um, you know, okay, so normally, right, you'd pitch like TV networks to like do interviews with you and stuff. No TV network is gonna do a feature on a book right now, right? Because it's, and understandably so, this is totally unimportant in the grand scheme of things. So you, you just a lot of the press that you'd normally have is kind of limited. Secondly, um, it's just tough to break through. So say uh, uh, um, a major outlet writes a book review of your book. Before Corona, maybe that gets, maybe that gets posted on the homepage of NewYorkTimes.com or BostonGlobe.com or whatever. Now, if you're not writing about Corona, you're not going to yeah. be on the homepage. You're not going to be right. on the front page. You're not going to be. In, so you just get, um, you just get, you know, buried under, under, underneath a lot of stuff. With that being said, you know, we're making the best of it. You know, at the end of the day, I didn't write this book, you know, which is called Mistranslations, Me and Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. It's a book about where I spent a year reconnecting with my estranged parents. And, uh, you know, it's about the immigrant experience. It's about forgiveness and healing and, and mental health and all this other stuff. I wrote this because I thought I had a good story to tell. I didn't write this to become a bestseller. I would love for it to be a, become a bestseller, but my validation does not come from sales for this. And if your validation for a project comes from how much it makes, this is not a good time to be releasing something. Because it's just, also because you're asking people who might not have disposable income to spend money, Yeah. right? And so, you know, I'm aware, it's a little bit awkward right now to be pitching people to buy something when they they don't even know where their next meal's gonna come from. And so I, I'm just very cognizant of that. And thankfully I even got to do this. Would I have liked, would I have liked to have released this when there wasn't a global pandemic going on? Yes, but more than that, I wish there wasn't a global pandemic going on for obvious reasons. For sure, for sure. Can you, can you just kind of like go through like, you know, if you were going to try to convince somebody to spend uh, money on your book as opposed to on their next meal, what uh, what would be your uh, what would well, be your book, pitch for well, the book? Tastes good. Uh, there you go. Like, what uh, can you just kind of go through like the you know yeah. what it's about, like so, where it came from, all that. The book uh, traces uh, a year of my life 
uh, my parents were arranged to get married. They had a really toxic relationship. And as a result, even though we grew up in the same household, we didn't know anything about each other. When I started writing this book, I didn't know how old they were. I didn't know uh, how they met, how they came to this country, any extended family. Um, I, I didn't know anything about them. I, at the time, I didn't even know where they were living. Um, my dad moved to India without telling anybody when he was in college. Uh, my mom and I lost touch. I didn't know where she was living. And frankly, I didn't want them to die without me giving our relationship some sort of chance. So, so over that course of a year, I found my mom. I didn't have her number when I first started. Um, you know, with my dad, I didn't know where in India he was. And, you know, so eventually we flew to India, my fiance and I. Um, we spent time with my father, spent time with my mother, who's living in New Jersey, where, near where we grew up. And, um, you know, I, I asked them several difficult questions. We had a lot of difficult conversations about, you know, our family, how we split apart. You know, you know a process like this requires you to look inward. And, you know, and I'll tell you, Asian parents sometimes aren't good at that, you know? So, um, so that's, so that's essentially the genesis of the book. Um, it was a difficult emotional journey and one I'm glad I went through and, and it's still going to this day. It's not like, it's, it's not like a Hallmark movie where everything's fine. You know, it's not quite how it works, but, um, I'm glad I went through it. Yeah. How would you capture the emotions of all of that? Most, a lot of memoirs are based on recall. Like, oh, when I was six, this happened. When I was 10, this happened. This, to answer your question, I, most of the quotes in the book are based on recordings and video because we documented the whole process. At the beginning of this, I thought that maybe we do this as a documentary. And then I thought, you know, putting a bunch of cameras in immigrant parents' faces might be a little bit intrusive. In this case, essentially, you know, recorded everything, had video going the whole time, anytime I was with my family, copious notes. And that's how I was, I was able to like um, capture a lot of it in the same way that you guys, you know, are recording as much as you can when you guys are doing a story. I very much approached it like a journalist because it allowed me to detach myself from the process in some ways. You mentioned that, you know, so many of these memoirs are, are based on recall. Was it strange to not, not just be like remembering things, but the story is like what is happening to you as you go through it? You know what I mean? Like what, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as you're writing it, like, was that kind of a strange position to be in? Yeah. So in fact, if I started this process today, it'll be a different book because I'm a different person. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so I genuinely wanted to be, it to be who I was in the moment. Like as I read the book now, and it's not, I'm reading other books. I don't like just read my own book. <laughs> um, but you know, sometimes I'll be doing excerpts or whatever. As I read the book now, there are certain chapters where I'm like, well, I don't recognize this person, you know, like, or man, this is not who I, this is not what I'd write today. Um, but I did want it to be a genuine reflection of who I was in that year. Um, I didn't want it to be like your traditional, you know, your traditional, here's who I am. Also, I'm like, I was 30 when I wrote the book, a 31. Who am I to like write a life memoir, right? If I'm going to write a memoir, it's got to be different. It's got to be about something very specific because I'm, I'm in my thirties. Like who, who am I to like, I've not lived enough of life, enough of a notable life to be like, oh, hey, so Pandeb, my life, the book. <laughs> It'd be ridiculous. It'd be a ridiculous thing to ask me about. This is a very, very specific part of my life that I thought was worth sharing with people. All right. So, I mean, are there, yeah, are there details that people should know? You know, what do you, yeah. what do you want people to know as they're, as uh, it's uh, coming out? 
the the book comes out on April 21st. Uh, please pre-order uh, from your favorite independent bookstore because very few businesses are as threatened right now uh, than indie bookstores. And that was the case even before uh, the pandemic hit. So please help save your local bookstore and um, I hope everyone enjoys it. And if you don't enjoy it, don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Five star reviews only for Sopan's yeah, book and for our podcast. Otherwise yeah. don't read it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap things up with one more Celtics-related question here. As the, uh, you know, obviously we don't know if the uh, season's going to keep going or not. What uh, if it does come back for the postseason? What would you be most? What are you going to be most interested in watching? Well, in answer your question, it actually literally feels like years since basketball has been played, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Like I, I'm like. I just like I'm, I'm jogging my memory of what happened and what the trends were during the season. Like I tweeted I, a little bit ago, it's wild that Nipsey Hussle died like a year ago, and yet somehow that feels so much more recent than like yeah. Rudy Gobert touching everybody's microphones. <laughs> like it's it's wild. Um, so on one hand, you have to imagine. Let's say the season starts up in like July for the sake of conversation. I wonder if there are going to be a bunch of people that were not healthy before that are going to be healthy now. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but you can imagine a world in which Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are suddenly able to play for the Nets. I think Sean Marks actually said recently he's not ruling out that possibility. Right. So it's on the July table. I would be more than a year since the Achilles ruptured for Kevin Durant. And so suddenly the eighth seeded Nets are going up against with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert, who are all should be healthy, are going up against, you know, Giannis and Chris Middleton. Uh, for the Celtics in particular, Kemba was dealing with the, the knee and suddenly he, can, he maybe has two or three months where he's able to rest it and hopefully be at full strength for the playoffs. You have Robert Williams. In theory, he's healthy. So I just, I don't know what the ceiling is for this healthy Celtics team because we don't know what the landscape's going to look like. Because you're going to have a lot of players that don't have access to hoops right now. So are going to go months without shooting the ball in a league that is now more than ever thriving on shooting. They're not thriving on like big men posting up. They're thriving on shooting. So I, you know, who's going to be in shape? Who's going to be out of shape? You know, who's going to be slow? Who's going to be, you know, who's going to need like 10 games to catch up to a normal game speed? And you're going to have a whole, I bet you're going to have a whole new spate of injuries from players jumping into things without like ramping up rather than, you know, you know, so I, we just don't know what the league's going to look like. Me personally, and I have no information or, you know, whatever. I don't see how the league comes back. Same. You know, I, I just don't see it. I just don't see how you can, because even let's say you don't have crowds. Let's say you don't have crowds. Let's say you play in front of an empty arena. Even the bare minimum staff to get two NBA teams to be ready for a game, to put on a game, is still pretty significant. And even if you have, like, for TV crews to air that game, that's a significant investment of staff, even, even on a skeletal level. So I just I don't see how this happens in a responsible time frame. Even putting the health implications aside, the amount of time that will have passed by the time the league can resume, it basically is the equivalent of an off season. So then it just feels wrong. Obviously something feeling wrong would not prevent yeah, the okay. league from making money and things like that. But like, it just seems just wildly, I don't know, inappropriate so, is the right word, but do you get what I'm trying I to say? Agree. Like so much time I, I will agree. have passed. It seems almost like unfair. 
Right. I, I, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. But also, like, and then what do you do next season? And then what do you do if a player gets corona again? Do you <laughs> shut down the league again? You know, like, right. you know, so that's what you're risking if you open things back up, yeah. you know, relatively soon. And I, I just don't see that, how that's going to be possible with the rate that we're at right now. And my whole thing from the start of this has been, it makes the most sense to just stop, cut it off, and try to start it back up again in October, because then you might have things more under control, even if you have to play like a couple of months without fans or whatever it might be. But just like, like, and as, and I mean, as much as that sucks for teams like the Bucks and teams like the Clippers who are, you know, the Lakers who are trying to make sure that Lakers. their stars stay put, like, I mean, and who have like real chances to win championships, like it's brutal for all of those teams. But at the same time, it's like, if you just stop it, you start, you start it up again in October. It, that just feels like the natural progression at this yeah. point. Right. And also, the, the problem is, is like the league was already taking a financial hit from the China thing. Yeah. Remember Adam Silver said at the All-Star break that they had lost, you know, upwards of 400 million from that. Now we're talking about potentially billions of dollars in losses yeah. between the TV, ticket sales, everything. And that's a huge problem for the league. Between salary cap or whatever, it's a huge hit to the business of the league. And they're going to try to rescue this in any way, shape, or form. You know, do you, uh, I'm sure you guys saw Woj's tweet about uh, the horse game that they're playing. Yeah. You know, they're going to try to get get anything they can out of this. But I, I, I agree with you, Tom. It, it, fe- it feels like, to me, that this season is going to be a wash. And think about all the legacies that will be affected. Like, what if this was the last great LeBron year? Yeah. What if, you know, what if this is the last Giannis Atetokounmpo, like, like, if you're the Bucks, do you trade Giannis next season? You know, like, what do you do? You might lose it for nothing now. You know, like, what, you know, you, what do you do? I mean, it's yeah. all crazy stuff to even think about. Um, but, like, just health concerns alone, I just feel like June is just way too... Yeah. How, does, how are they going to do that? How do, you do, how do you do that? I have no idea. I, and I, do you still hold a I draft? I don't see it happening. Like, do you, see, <laughs> you hold a draft in July? Like, what do you do? You're going to have to do the draft. Yeah, and I think it'll have to be in July. My, I mean, I think it would be hilarious if they, uh, if they just had to like have the draft, um, like in but the middle ha- of the season. But, but draft night trades might involve players that are playing for teams. Yeah, that's true. So they can't really do that. So how, yeah. can you actually hold the draft? And teams make draft night trades in part on how the last regular season went. So the regular season is still going, you know, and a team is deciding whether to rebuild or not. How will they know? And it, it feels like the safest answer here is just to let's just hey it sucks we lost we we lost the money but we'll, this is how it is let's just prepare for next season yeah. you know but again I'm not a doctor I'm not a government official <laughs> I'm not an NBA team owner I don't it's not my billions of dollars at stake you know so I'm I by no means an expert in any of this I, I'm just going by what I'm reading about where the curve is and you know it doesn't feel like we've seen the worst of this yet. For sure. sure. On that bright note, uh, (laughs) (laughs) we'll wrap things up here. Huge thanks to Soap and Deb. You can find his book on April 21st. Um, You can spend your food money on that. It's called Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter, at Soap and Deb. Uh, Thanks a lot for coming on, man. This was a lot of fun. We'll have to do this again. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Hope your families are safe and everything. Appreciate that, my man. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, 
Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.